So we heard in that set Art Pepper doing Blues for Press. And then we heard Stanley Turrentine with Shirley Scott, Taint What You Do. And we had Esperanza Spaulding with Dancing the Animal. And Eric Rivas with his tune, Earl and the Three-Quarter Compromise. And Bo Diddley, You Can't Judge a Book by Its Cover. All caught up here. At your radio station, listener-supported community radio, WPKN, in Bridgeport, Connecticut. We also had Catherine Russell in there with Aged and Mellow. You're listening to listener-supported community radio. We are WPKN in Bridgeport, Connecticut, 89.5 FM. Lisa Sahulka doing afternoon jazz. I'm here till 4 p.m. I am delighted to welcome a dear friend, Nani Hall Singh, to our airwaves. Nani Hall received his bachelor's degree from Yale University and his PhD from Harvard University. Nani Hall is an expert on coups. He is the author of the book Seizing Power, The Strategic Logic of Military Coups. He is now an assistant professor of national security affairs at the Naval War College. I met Nani Hall in Montgomery, Alabama, where he was teaching African political science at the Air War College. I invited him to join the show today um, because we will be doing special coverage of the inauguration tomorrow, Wednesday, uh, beginning at 11 o'clock. And I wanted to get Nani Hall Singh's view on what happened on January 6th. Was it a coup? From where I sit, it was not a coup. And I'll, I'll tell you why. A coup has a few ingredients that go into it. And some of them we could see. We could see an attempt to seize power by stopping a democratic transition that's definitely going on. It's definitely illegitimate. But what we're missing here is who's involved. And in my research, I say that a coup has to involve the state or security forces. Without that, it could be an assassination. It could be an invasion. It could be any number of other things. What's really perplexing about Donald Trump is that even though he's president of the United States, he's not using his authority as president to try to seize power. Instead, what he's doing is he's using his position as the head of the social movement to try to get what he wants. And we see this in a couple of different places. We see this, for example, um, when he was talking to the Georgia Secretary of State. He wasn't using the FBI to try to coerce this guy into changing the vote totals, nor was he trying to use state security forces to seize evidence. Instead, he's trying to convince this guy into doing his dirty work for him. And that's a little bit weird, right? It's a swindle rather than a robbery at gunpoint. Both times you end up without your wallet. (laughs) <laughs> but it's, it's a different experience. Now, the insurrection on Capitol Hill was very different. It was, you know, it was forceful, but I would liken it much more to something like having your wallet grabbed out of your hands. It, it was a traumatic experience, but it's still not the same thing as having someone point a gun at you. Um, one of the things we saw is that Trump went to the mall and he addressed his supporters. He addressed the people who were there but he doesn't actually issue commands to the military, to the National Guard, to DHS to support them, Um, or at least as far as we know. There's always information that 
can come out and has come out. I'm going based on of what we know at the time. It looks very different from what he did, for example, to the protesters in Seattle or to the protesters in Lafayette Square. As a matter of fact, I, I saw on Twitter one place where allegedly Trump said something like, well, maybe the military and the FBI can come up and join us if they're allowed. And you're like, he's the president of the United States. He could be saying, I want them to join us. I'm sending an order for them to join us. So the key about the coup is it involves using the power of the state against itself. And here Trump, who is the consummate, who believes himself to be an outsider and who always believes himself to be a flimflam man, um, is still acting that way, even though he's sitting in the White House. He doesn't know how to use the authority of the state or he's refusing to. Now, this is both good and bad. It's good in that, you know, if he tried to use the authority of the state, things could have ended up very badly. If he had tried to, to order military forces in, I think that could have been a lot worse. But the bad side of this is that it's not going to end on Wednesday. He's going to keep on using his position because he doesn't lose his position on Wednesday. He will still have the loyalty of these people and he will keep on using this to stir up violence. And so that's, that's a very big concern of mine. Do you think that he's not accessing the powers that he actually has because those bodies would not acquiesce to his desires at this point? Um, I think that's part of it. I think that he has gotten frustrated with the military and DHS. Um, and he knows that the military has, especially after Lafayette Square, has decided to stay out of things. Um, and so I think he's afraid that he'll get turned down. But I think the other part is he doesn't know how, right? And without having people who are willing to help him, he doesn't quite understand how to, how to do these things. And so he's always relied on people who are assisting him. And, and this goes to sort of why I think the definitions matter. Um, I'm not hung up on definitions in terms of, def look, definitions are magic words, nor are they legal. They aren't creating a penalty which comes with one definition or another. They matter analytically because they direct our attention towards key people and groups and they suggest effective responses. The wrong definition obscures our understanding and directs us away from critical parts of the problem. So in this case, if we call this a coup, it directs our attention towards the state. Um, and it makes us think about the relationships to the military and to the DHS. But if we understand it as an insurrection, then we start looking at who his enablers are. How is he engaging in this behavior? And an insurrection, for example, has a certain role for communication. How is he addressing his followers? Um, and there we see the very important role of Twitter. Now he's been suspended from Twitter and Facebook and pretty much every single social network out there. And he would be allowed on Parler, but Parler has been shut down. I have no idea if it's called Parler or Parlay. I've never been on it. Um, but it's been shut down. And so it's not going to do him any good. He is still the president of the United States. He's the first president to ever tweet. And it's not as if presidents have been unable to speak to people before without Twitter, but he's so reliant on Twitter that he's not doing any of the other things that he, that he could do. 
he could get on Fox and Friends for 12 hours at a time. He's not doing that. And so we're seeing him cut off from addressing people. And that shows us how important social media was and is. By the way, just as a, a side note here, um, social media is also very important to the radicalization of his followers. Um, one of the things we know about YouTube is that it's designed to promote engagement, right? So they wanna make sure you keep clicking on things so that you keep watching ads. So they've optimized the videos that you watch in order to prolong your engagement. And one of the things we know is that if you start out with something mildly wingnutty, in something like seven clicks, I don't have the figures in front of me, you end up with mm -hmm. something deeply conspiratorial and, and white supremacist. And so it shows us the way in which the social media corporations have played a role in the problem and therefore have a role to play in the solution. But, but stepping back up, there's another thing that's going on too. It's not just that he has the social media networks. He's also enabled by a whole bunch of politicians. All of these Republican congressmen, mainly men, uh, congressional representatives and senators who are enabling him and state politicians who are enabling him. And some of them are true believers, but others like Ted Cruz are purely opportunistic. And they form a very important part of the machinery of his attempt. And so understanding this as an insurrection says, okay, maybe we can't do as much directly against Trump, but one of the things we can do is we can change the cost benefit calculation for the people who are probably entirely opportunistically helping him, right? So we can say, you know what? You're helping him because you think it'll get you votes and it may even get you money fine, but we're going to cut you off from political donations. We're going to make sure that any corporation that supports you will face a boycott and that any corporation that supports someone who behaved in ways that were flagrantly anti-democratic, denying the validity of the vote, denying the validity of black voters, that those, that those politicians understand the consequences of this and that we put pressure on corporations so that they transmit that through. Um, if Sheldon Adelson just died and he was the biggest donor out there. The Cokes are starting to get cold feet. If the political action committees start to systematically punish these people and they have reasons for, for wanting to do so, these people are loose cannons within the party. Um, the National Manufacturers Association, which was a stalwart of the, of the Republican party has come out and criticized all the politicians who were denying the validity of Biden's victory. And so the party people are going to have to make some choices. And if they decide that they want to protect the party, they're going to have to start cutting off these different politicians who have been protecting and supporting Donald Trump. And without them, Trump becomes a good deal weaker. You're listening to listener-supported community radio. We are WPKN in Bridgeport, Connecticut, 89.5 FM. I'm speaking with Nani Hall Singh. Nani Hall Singh is an American political scientist. He wrote the book, Seizing Power, The Strategic Logic of Military Coups. And he's here talking to us today about what happened on January 6th and potentially what may happen tomorrow on January 20th. So let me ask you, right, and this is a hard question and you, you can say, I, I don't wanna go down that road, but 74 million people or so voted for him. I don't know what the final number was. Are they supporting a white supremacist 
or, or do you think that these are people that benefited from the economy or they have other reasons to have voted for them? They're, they're lifelong Republicans. I know it's a hard diagnosis, but what do you think? I suspect it's a little bit of both. Um, I certainly don't believe that all 74 million people who voted for Trump have the same beliefs as his hardcore of supporters. Both of these parties are very big tents. And this was a very high turnout party. And so people turn out for any number of different reasons. So the core of Trump's support is one thing. And then there's all of these other people. But I think one of the things we need to do is we need to get into an honest discussion about where supporting Trump leads us. And one of the things I'm hoping, perhaps naively, is that the events of, of January 6th, um, as we find out more and more what actually happened that day, will shock some of the people who were party members or who benefited from the economy, who might say something like, look, I'm a Republican, I believe in low taxes, I believe in business friendliness, but I'm no longer a Republican who supports Trump. I wanna support Liz Cheney or Mitch McConnell. Now, personally speaking, are these politicians I like and support? No but I think they have a very different approach to things. And I think they're much more within the system politicians. And I'm hoping that what happens is that as Trump leaves office and the Republican party gets into a fight internally in terms of what it is, how it's going to step forward into, into the next election, what it stands for, that some of these voters who supported Trump who voted for Trump without supporting Trump, uh, find people who they like better than Trump to support the next time around. But a lot of this work has to be done within the Republican Party, and it's not going to be easy. Um, I'm hoping that Mitch McConnell does some of it for his own self-interest. I'm hoping that um, Mitt Romney does some of it. Um, he is in a very safe seat in Utah. He doesn't need to worry about losing an election. And so he's in a position to take principled stances in a way that a lot of other people aren't. Um, I'm hoping that Liz Cheney comes out and the Cheneys, you know, engage in their kind of particular brand of internecine warfare and call in all their chips. But who knows? It, it's really disturbing. And what makes it a lot more challenging than this is that Trump doesn't come out of nowhere. Trump comes out of a particular, a, a particular branch of the Republican Party, a particular stream, which goes back Barry Goldwater. Right, right. So part of the problem here is that Trump doesn't come out of nowhere. He is drawing upon a particular strand of the Republican Party. And if you look back at Barry Goldwater, he was perfectly happy with the, with the actual literal Ku Klux Klan endorsing his run for presidency. And so this is not the first time that Republican candidates have formed partnerships white, with white supremacist movements within America. And as such, because this has been a part of the party for a very long time, it's going to require a lot more work if the party is going to repudiate it. And some people who are rather cynical about this will say it is impossible for the party to do so. 
I'm a little bit more sanguine about it. I don't think that this is the party of Lincoln anymore, but I do think that the Republican party could reimagine itself in, in a number of different ways. Um, and what we're going to see is what it ends up doing. There's a bigger problem here too, which is that much as I want to say, like a lot of my friends who are liberals, this is not America, that's completely untrue. There's a very long tradition of this sort of thing. It happened in Wilmington, North Carolina at the end of reconstruction. It happened in New Orleans. Um, the people who are these hard core um, supporters of Trump are supporting a particular vision of America that does have deep roots. And so we can't just say, oh, that isn't America. Of course it's America. America, there are a few different visions of America that are warring here. And we need to choose which America we want to be going forward. One of the things that I'm very concerned with is about white supremacy within the US military. Right now, you can be a, an avowed white supremacist. You can be a member of a white supremacist group. And that's not enough to get you kicked out of the military. On the other hand, if you are, for example, a black service member who complains about racist behavior in the military, you might get pushed out. Think about that. The military is willing to tolerate people who are fully members of white supremacist organizations, but they're not willing to take a stand in favor of equality. What does that tell us? What does it tell us that right now the Pentagon is going over the 25,000 National Guardsmen who are stationed in DC to protect the inauguration to make sure that there are no white supremacists among them? They couldn't simply assume that was the case. This is really deeply disturbing. And, and we saw the fruit of it. There were people who are active duty, reserve, and retirees who are amongst the group that attacked the Capitol on the 6th. And in some of the people in the, uh, who attacked the Capitol, it now appears may have wanted to try to kidnap or possibly harm Nancy Pelosi. So there is a lot which is landing on Biden's plate because there's a lot that's overdue. So let me ask you, do you think that they're uh, overdoing it with the 25,000 National Guardsmen and all the capitals being uh, protected? And or do you know you, you studied, you're an expert in coups, you're an expert in insurrections. What are you expecting on Wednesday? Are you nervous? Do you think we're going to see more of the kind of violence we saw on January 6th? Or you think that, um, you know, possibly people now realize the dangers of what they did and they wouldn't do it again. And I mean by that, that they got arrested. This yeah. is what I meant when I said that, yeah. I, so I think there are two things going on. One of them is the FBI is making some arrests. Uh, the social networks are down. Um, people used to plan this sort of thing partly on Facebook and Twitter and partly on Parler. And a lot of these modes of communication have been taken away. People are getting arrested. And I think that is going to disrupt things. Um, the FBI does know how to monitor and disrupt organizations. They know how to prevent violent attacks. So I, I think this is something that the state is fully capable of handling. Um, I do think that, that there's something else going on here as well, which is I think that these groups thought that they scored a significant win and they're willing to take their win for the time being. And this makes them long-term dangerous. They are going to use the assault on the Capitol as a recruiting uh, vehicle for the next years or decades. And I think that's going to be very scary. 
So personally, I, I don't actually believe that we are likely to see the kinds of attacks we saw on the 6th happen again. I think that now that they know that they might get arrested, and now that it's much harder, I think that the, the risk has gone way down. I am not a security planner. I don't think it takes 25,000 troops. I think this is an overreaction which is designed to send a signal. And the signal it's designed to send is that Washington, D.C. is fully in control of the state and fully supporting of Joe Biden. And I think hopefully we will see very few protests and demonstrations at the state level. And if we do see them, they will be entirely. But I don't think the problem is going to go away on Thursday. I think we are going to continue to see the risk of this sort of thing bubbling up again and again and again. Um, and they're going to have to play whack-a-mole for a very long time. Nani Halsing, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate this. And I hope that you'll come back to WPKN again. Certainly. Just to make it really clear here, I'm speaking for myself as a scholar and um, not in terms of myself as a professor at a war college. I'm speaking purely on my own. While the storm in your heart is 